Thanks, Steve. Um, well, for those who don't know me, appreciate that there's a few people. My name's Al. I'm one of the leaders here. And um, I'm going to be continuing our series on abundant Christian life, which is using passages from Romans as a springboard um, towards looking at what it means to have abundant life in Christ. And for those who were here three uh, weeks ago when I was preaching, I started off with a picture of a letter from HMRC and the tagline, Bad News. You'll be pleased to know this week, we're in Romans 5, and the NIV heading for it is peace and hope. So there you go. We're on to a better start already. I should um, add that I did get on to good news eventually. Is there a PowerPoint? Yes, brilliant. Good. Um, So Steve last week was talking about how the gospel is news in as much as it's relevant and meaningful and has an effect on our lives, and it's good news. And he was looking at what righteousness meant for the individual, how we can be made right with God. This morning, we're looking more at how the gospel is good news for groups, for communities. And that's why I have this title of World Peace, which will make sense as we go along. Just to kick us off, though, I've been spending a good chunk of this week at University Freshers Fair, And along with nine other churches, we've been running two different stalls there. One for people who are looking for churches, and that was sort of signing people up and helping them find a church that would sort of fit their background and help them settle. And the other one for people who weren't looking for churches. So we covered all bases, really. Um, That was everybody from people who had sort of been brought up as Christians but maybe weren't sure they were going to continue with it, through people who maybe hadn't thought about it, and through to people who were pretty sure that they didn't want to know about God. And... We were sort of encouraging them, everything from just encouraging them to reach out in prayer to sitting down and talking to them about what the gospel was. It was a fantastic time, really great effort across 10 churches. But we started off with this. This was our conversation starter. We had a big easel uh, and a board on it, and what matters most to you in the world? And we just asked people to stick post-its on it saying what the thing was that was most important to them in the world. One person wrote cats. Um, one person wrote Putin. Make of that what you will. Somebody wrote stopping Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to get too political, don't worry. I'm just, just commenting here. But I wonder if anyone can guess what the, what the most common ones were. Just shout them out. Family, yep. You have to be louder. Peace, yep. Money. Oh, we didn't have too many money, actually. People just didn't want to admit to that, maybe. Actually, not much about food either. I'll tell you what, you got most of them, to be honest. They came into three major categories. The first one was something along the lines of family. And, you know, that could be either people saying, you know, my family, my parents, my brothers and sisters, but also other people. People said quite a lot of other people. Um, Then we had sort of the philanthropic goals, um, whether that was reducing disease or one that came up a lot was stopping inequality. And the last one, you didn't have to be Miss USA, was world peace. And people always had this slightly sort of mm, look on their face as they said it, but ultimately, a lot of people did say this was what really mattered to the most in the world. If you, if you had to put the most important thing, it was world peace. And we were sort of talking this out because we wanted to hear what was in people's hearts. We wanted to um, talk to them about the gospel. And one of the questions that we asked was, well, do you think that's possible? And the sad thing was that most people concluded, No. No, it's not possible. And the answers nearly always came down to some variant on human nature. Let's say, you know, people are too selfish or really actually there's too many divisions or it only takes one person to to ruin it. And so we had this really sad situation where the things that people most 
matter, the things that most mattered to people in the world, the things they most wanted, they actually acknowledged as being impossible. Sorry, I said I was starting with good news today, didn't I? It does get better. <laughs> so we do have a lot more calls for community these days, don't we? I don't know if you've sort of seen on the bus adverts in the last few months. There's been these adverts on the back of the Oxford buses saying, be a nosy neighbor. Did anyone else see those ones? Yeah, and they're sort of encouraging you to check up on your vulnerable neighbor, your elderly relative, and make sure they're okay. Obviously, there was Cameron's Big Society, and there's this call for increased community. And I was thinking about this and wondering what to say about it, and then God gave me a better idea um, in the form of a book sent by some friends. Many of you will remember Toby and Ashley, who came and stayed with us last year from the Bruderhof community, and they're in the habit of corresponding with us and occasionally send us a book they're reading. And a few days ago, they sent us this book here. Oh, there we go. Called to Community, The Life Jesus Wants for His People. And the foreword was written by a favorite theologian of mine, Stanley Halvas, and he says this. Community is dangerous. This is easy to forget at a time when we often hear calls for more community. Of course, it's quite understandable that many people today feel the need for it. After all, we live in a social order that has confused freedom with the isolation of the self. We may think we know one another, but our knowing only intensifies our isolation. This is because although we bump up against one another, we share no common story and no corresponding judgments about what is true, good, and beautiful. As a result, we become strangers to ourselves and to those we call friends. In such a social order, people too often confuse community with being a crowd, and crowds are intrinsically dangerous. Put it much better than I would have. So... I wanted to pick up particularly on this idea of a lack of common story. Everybody has their own story. I'm um, a participant, I suppose you'd say, in a group called 38 Degrees. Some of you might well know about that. It's a community formed around campaigning for the common good, and I've engaged with them over particular issues of social justice and climate change. Yet at times I find myself wholly opposed to their aims. And I find sort of I'm distanced from them because they make assumptions about my ideology and what I must be ideologically opposed to, our stories only partially overlap. A group which is formed entirely around this idea of furthering the common good, and yet our stories only partially overlap. And I think we can risk finding ourselves in a fragmented society with defensive groups formed around our little common story. And it's into this that the gospel speaks powerfully. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to Romans 5? Because this is good stuff. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We had some of that this morning, didn't we? You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... 
Christ died for us. You see, the most common factor of most movements, most societies, whether it's communism, vegetarianism, the free market, whatever it might be, is that everybody should accept our common story. There's a, you know, then we could get along. It's I'm over here, we're over here, come and join us. And the difficulty with that is that that common story is their own. It favors them. Some people are already in the position of being right and everybody else has to come and join them. And it favors that group's worldview. Even movements that are based on tolerance have this. They say, you know, actually there is no such thing as absolute right or wrong. Come over here and be tolerant. But in the process also excluding people who think there's an absolute right and wrong. What we have in the gospel is something different. It's a common story in which everybody stands on an equal footing. It starts right there in verse 1. We've been justified through faith. The people promoting this common story aren't saying, we're, we're privileged, we've got a great status that you don't have, because the message is ultimately one of their own failure, our own failure, and God's great goodness. We're justified by faith. In every way, the community that we're part of is defined not by what we do or what we should do, but what Jesus has done. Let's look at this in a bit of detail because we've got it here in the passage again. Because Jesus has given us peace with God, we're forgiven, so we can forgive. Because he's cleared our debts, we don't act to earn favor or to try and repay. We act out of love. Because Jesus has given us access into his generous grace, we don't have to live for ourselves. We can serve others not because we've made up some self-imposed rules about charity. I ought to do this. I want to push myself to be a more generous person. But because God has given us so much. And because Jesus has given us a hope that goes beyond physical death, we don't even need to be discouraged by suffering or death. That's a powerful narrative. I was reflecting a bit this week, as I suspect many of you were, on the situation in Haiti and the history of that country since 2010. Um, you know, the earthquake in 2010, they, then the aid workers and the UN peacekeepers arriving and mistakes made in that process leading to an outbreak of cholera. And now, of course, Hurricane Matthew destroying much of what had been achieved since 2010. And if we have a worldview that ends with physical death, if we have a worldview that is based around the ultimate good being preventing suffering in this world and prolonging life, avoiding death, then some of the most noble efforts of mankind really come to nothing. Actually, Jesus gives us a vision as a community that goes beyond death. He gives us things that are even more precious than prolonging physical life for a bit longer. The writer to the Hebrews talks about the earth wearing out like a garment. That's the perspective they have. You know, the earth's wearing out, so commit yourself to the kingdom, is how the, the writer to the Hebrews puts it. And I think this is really key, because as a community, we're often accused as Christians of being stuck in the past. And I don't know if you've heard that. I've heard it an awful lot. And in some senses, okay, fair enough, we are, yes. We do hold to a belief system that has been developing over thousands of years, which was defined most clearly 2,000 years ago, and which we hope has not changed too much in that time. But actually, our community, stemming from what Jesus has done, is the most futuristic community there is, because we're not planning for five years' time 
or 25 years' time, or even as my pension advisor would probably have it, 60 or 70 years' time. I don't have a pension advisor, by the way. That's why Steve's chuckling. Um, we're planning for 10,000 years and beyond. We're planning for eternity. We're a futuristic community with our eyes fixed, not on this tent here, which is wearing out, but on what will happen afterwards. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5, and I wonder if you'd turn there, because that's where this naturally leads. He says, with reference to our bodies, he says, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. I picked that picture because, although the tent's quite a nice one, it's nothing quite to the huge structure behind it. What naturally flows from this is a concern that everyone be included in this futuristic community. To be assured of a place in the house before the tent wears out. It's like going out in a storm and saying, guys, these tents, they're not going to last much longer. Come into the house. All you've got to do is make friends with the guy who owns the house. And Paul calls this a ministry of reconciliation. His burning desire for people to be reconciled with God. This is from 2 Corinthians 5, just a bit further along. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was our heart going out at that Freshers' Fair stall. You know, Paul goes from explaining himself to, to just saying it like it is in his heart. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Well, what does it look like to minister reconciliation? What does it look like to try to usher people into friendship with God? I want to suggest three ways that we can do that. One is by inviting others into our community. Russell Rook, one of the chaps who helped to set up Chapel Street, the trust behind our school um, in East Oxford, spoke once about holiness. Some of you will remember the sermon was called The Parable of the Rich Tea Biscuit. But what he highlighted is that holiness that's driven by duty is easily corrupted. 
In the Old Testament, the law said that you were ceremonially clean unless you did certain things or touched certain things which would make you unclean. But holiness that's motivated by love is infectious. Jesus touched the leper. The leper was clean. The prostitute washed Jesus' feet with her hair. Her life was changed, not his. Our holiness, if it's motivated by love, if it's coming from what Jesus has done, is infectious. Our belonging to God is infectious. And if we invite people in, that will have an effect. And I've put up here, we need to belong to a community. We are a community here, but this is not necessarily the easiest setting into which to invite people. And so I just want to encourage you that if you're not part of a small group, if you don't have what we call our communities, if you don't have one of those, become part of one because that's the community into which you want to invite people for them to experience Jesus' community transforming them. So one way we can respond, invite people in and be in community ourselves. We also need to share the reason for our hope. You know, Peter tells us that, doesn't he? He says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. And we need to add words to our behavior. It's absolutely vital. I want to suggest that it takes a bit of practice as well. Um, I, for two years, worked as a teacher at the King's School part-time. I taught IT. And I'd like to think I know quite a lot about IT, but I didn't know very much about teaching IT. I'm trying to think if there's anybody in this room who I taught. I think, thankfully, I've got away with that one. Um, But any teacher can tell you that it's not enough to know your subject. You have to know how to teach. Getting some nods for that one. It's the same with giving a reason for the hope we have. It might be there in our hearts, but we need to practice how we tell people. We need to be able to tell people in ways that work for them, using language that they understand because it's not our jargon. We need to be able to tell it in a way that's not too rambling, that they lose interest before we get to the good bit. So I'd encourage you, practice telling people about the hope that you have. If you're a little bit nervous at first, practice telling another Christian. But it really is a good exercise to do. We need to be able to explain to people how and why they can be reconciled to God. But most of all, though, I think we need to make sure that we keep the gospel at the center of our community. We don't forgive because we should. We forgive because God first forgave us. We don't love because we should, but because God first loved us. Perhaps most importantly, particularly in the student world, my experience, we don't keep ourselves from sinning, from doing wrong stuff, because we should or because it's written in a book somewhere but because we want to please the God who's made peace with us. It's a different motivation, isn't it? And coming back to that question of world peace, it's God's new creation that will truly experience world peace. It's not possible in corrupted, fallen humanity, but in God's new creation it is possible. I think... That's why the act of breaking bread is so sacred to our community. It's a reminder of the very core of our existence. The gospel is not some sidecar bolted onto our community. You know, here's our great loving community. By the way, we've got the gospel to give you. It's really good. It's right at the very core of who we are. So in just a minute, I'm going to hand back to Steve. And we're going to break bread. And in doing so, let's remember... 
that the gospel is core to our community. It defines us. And as it overflows from us to others, we can be ministers of reconciliation. Steve.